Would you like to accelerate your career and reach your full potential in just minutes a day? Welcome to the LeadX Show with New York Times bestselling author and Inc. 500 entrepreneur, Kevin Cruz. Can you be more productive by actually doing less? Hello, everyone. I'm Kevin Cruz. Welcome to the LeadX Show, where we're helping you to stand out and to get ahead as a leader. Hey, if you haven't left a quick rating or review for the LeadX Show on iTunes or wherever you like to listen, maybe it's Stitcher, maybe it's somewhere else, please take one minute to do that. It's the single best way you can say thank you and to help us to find new listeners. If you don't know how to leave a review in your app or over on iTunes, just go to leadx.org forward slash subscribe and it will bounce you to the right page. Our quote of the day, sticks in a bundle are unbreakable. Kenyan proverb, who knows who originally said it, but that's the attribution I've got. Our guest today is a management professor at UC Berkeley, and he's been honored by Thinkers 50, being named as one of the top management thinkers in the world. He's the co-author with Jim Collins of the New York Times bestseller, Great by Choice, and his new book is Great at Work, How Top Performers Work Less and Achieve More. Our guest is Dr. Morton Hansen. Morton, welcome to the show. Thank you, it's a pleasure being here. So I'm looking forward to talking about your, your new book in just a minute, but I have a tradition. I always ask our guests the same first question uh, because I think we can learn a lot from failures and I'm selfish. I wanna learn from your failures, not just my own. So <laughs> give us a story of one of your best failures. Yeah, you know, I got many of those. So, uh, but but here's one that it's, it sounds a little trivial, but it isn't. It's actually a, a quite a large failure. When I was doing my PhD studies at Stanford, I uh, you had to produce a draft of your thesis, and I gave it to my thesis advisor at the time, which was Professor Jeff Pfeffer at Stanford Business School. And he read it, and he came back, and he said, you know, it isn't particularly good. It has some weaknesses, some holes and arguments. You need to improve this draft. And I said, I'm going to show him, right? So I worked like mad on this draft. I added footnotes, I added data, I added arguments, I bolstered my, my sentences and I gave it back to Jeff. And then he came back and he said, well, now it's much worse. <laughs> <laughs> because what I'd done is that I had added stuff. I had added more information, not less. And he said, now it's cluttered. There is no simplicity. There is no elegance to it anymore. You know, then I had to rework the whole thing again almost starting from scratch, really. And, you know, this is what you've been working on for two years. Wow. But what I learned was that more is not better, always. Mm. And just adding things to, in this case, a draft is not better. And I think that was a very good lesson, that you want to have elegant, simple, uh, straightforward prose in this case or in any other endeavor. And so a very good lesson that came out of that, but at the time... You know, failures, they, they, they hurt in a moment, don't they? They sure do. But, you know, as if we can think of them, I think it's a great sort of attitude that, that you have, which is, you know, there are they're no real failures. There are opportunities for learning. And it stinks, but one needs to learn. And, and this was a good learning for me. It actually benefited me later on when I had to turn it into academic articles mm. that I learned a very good lesson early on. And I'm just curious, because obviously you went on to uh, <laughs> to have a, a fabulous career. Do, do you ever bring this up to Jeff when you see him about his feedback to your original uh, dissertation? He, he has like a memory like an elephant, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> so he brings it up to you. <laughs> so I, I have mentioned this to him at several times. Yeah, he, he mentions other things to me. Here the other day, he said, you know what? 
I was an unusual candidate. Before the qualifying exam after the first year, I took a month break in the summer and he thought, you know, no, no other students have ever done that. Uh, being European, I understand the benefit of taking restorative breaks as Dan Pinks talks about in his new book, When, and it gave me energy. But anyway, so uh, yes, I, I think it's a good, it's a good, it's a good lesson. It sounds uh, like took, you've yeah. been able to teach each other a few things about uh, yeah. different ways to work. <laughs> so vacations, you know, we need breaks in life too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, we don't, uh, especially uh, here in the States, we don't take enough of those breaks, whether it's throughout our workday or throughout the work right. year, I believe. So Morton, your new book is Great at Work, How Top Performers work less and achieve more. And I like to think of it as sort of an up-to-date and evidence-based version of the the classic Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. But you know, yours is based on some pretty rigorous data. And one of the keys you say is do less, but then obsess. So what do you mean by that? So we've been told for many years now that you should focus at work. And the problem with that statement is that it's not exactly accurate. We need to be a little more fine-tuned. And, and this is what I mean. The do less than obsess really has two components to it. The first component is that you need to have that focus, which means choosing a set of priorities and how important that is. And so the top performers in my data, they were really hyper-focused in that sense. But that is not enough. You also need to go all in on those few things you focus on. You can't just apply average effort. They need to be intense, targeted effort. So it's a two-step process, being very good at prioritizing and then dedicating all your resources, attention, and your fanatic attention to detail into excelling in those few things. And I call that obsess on purpose because obsession sounds a little, a little harsh. Mm that you need to obsess. But you really need to dedicate yourself to excel in those few things. And that's what I mean by that obsession. Yeah, it's fascinating. I was actually interviewing another guest earlier today and he was finding in one of his studies of, of high achievers is that very similar. He says they often know exactly what what they want to achieve. Right. And then any decision they have to make or any choice of how to use their time, they just ask, is this going to get me closer to that goal or not? And if it exactly. is, right. that's a yes. If yeah. it's off the side, then it's a, an easy no. It's quite, quite clear for them. Right. Yes, exactly. And and so you got to have that very clear set of priorities. But you mentioned the word no. Uh, well, you know, if you're going to focus, you have to be able to say no. Mm. And I think it's going to be one of the most important professional skills for people. And I also would say, uh, especially when you're starting out in your career, uh, when you are sort of uh, looking to advance, maybe from midpoint to more senior roles, that point in your career, many people, including myself when I started out, think that the best way is to say, yes, please your boss, please colleagues, please senior people. And the more you can say yes and then deliver, the more you can say, well, there is, there is a team player, there is a good colleague, and then you get promoted. And that's a very dangerous strategy because when you say yes too often, it's going to come back to hurt you mm. because at some point you're going to spread yourself too thin. Right. And that means that your quality of work is going to go down. Mm. And then the people are going to start noticing. The presentation wasn't as sharp as it should be. It wasn't prepared for the meetings as it should have been. There seemed to be some error rates in the spreadsheet. 
and so on. I remember being confused around that lesson. It was uh, almost 30 years ago, one of my first jobs. And uh, I was working in a pharmaceutical company, very low level, almost like administrative, very young. And the senior managing director there, it was a Friday late, almost five o'clock already. Everyone had been, was gone, but he was trying to get this package together for FedEx, this report. And I said, I'll stay. I'll stay with you. I'll help you do it. And thinking, this is good. You know, I can impress the boss and show my effort. Right, exactly. And one other guy who had stayed, he said, Kevin, he says, it was good maybe once. He says, but you just trained him that he can wait until the last (laughs) minute next week and you will come and stay late and do this for him. And did that happen? (laughs) I didn't stay in the organization long enough. I had other You would be the the Friday night shift guy. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly Right. right. Well, so you you talk about the importance of saying no. And that leads me to my next question is, you know, there's many of our listeners who are saying, well, sure, you know, I I would like to do less, but my boss gives me more and more. So practically speaking, what could somebody do to sort of say no to their boss? Here's the practical advice. So let's say you're working on two projects and your boss comes around and says, hey, can you take on a third one, right? Now you have a dilemma because if you're doing the three, you're not going to do them as well as you really want to. There's just simply not enough hours in the day. So a good tactic is to put the burden back on the boss. And that is to say, what do you like me to prioritize? What should I do first? And now you are asking the boss to set a priority for you. And after all, that's a fair question because the job of a manager is to prioritize. That's what they're being paid for. That's why they are managers. Hmm. So it's totally fair to do that. Now, of course, your boss might just respond, well, can't you do all three, right? (laughs) And you then have to say, well, if you want me to do excellent work, we need to prioritize among these three. So which one should I concentrate on doing first Hmm. and and, and second? Again, you're just pushing back gently. Hmm. And here's a very important thing in that communication. Make sure you say it explicitly that you want to concentrate on the few and prioritize in order to do excellent work and not to be a slacker. So you need to say something like, if I do all three, you know, the quality will, you know, have some problems uh, because we don't have the resources. And I really would like to prioritize here because then I can do exceptional work, right? You're, You're just saying it. Of course, then you also have to deliver on that. But, but that is a t- technique, you know, back on the boss and just communicate why. And the reason is this is the path to excellent work, which the boss should really a- appreciate. And what I like about that advice so much, being a boss who probably at times gives too much work out, it's not my intention to overwork people, but sometimes I legitimately forget all the other things that they're working on, even if I'm right. the one who yeah. gave it to them. Yeah. And, and that's, so that's a great point. If they yeah, could I mean, just that come boss back. Remember that right. has already given you five things to do, right? That's exactly oh, yeah, right. Okay. right. So, so that's a great point. So you need to communicate. Look, I, I'm working on these five assignments. Never giving me a six assignment. Oh, really? Okay. Well, it sounds like you have too much on your plate. I'm yeah. going to ask someone else. Yeah. Um, now, there might be emergencies where you need to chip in like you did that Friday night. And I think it's okay. And this is sort of an average thing. But if you become sort of the yes person, the go-to person, mm-hmm. like always uh, piling on more work on your plate. And, and if you're really good at it, you know, you deliver. But you get into this category that I call do more than stress. Mm. These are people who take on a lot of things and then they stress and work really hard to try to accomplish all of it. And I am very often like that myself. Sure. 
And, and what we found in our study is that top performers are saying no more, they're concentrating more, and then they go all in. And they perform better than the do more than stress people. And, and that's a good lesson. That's a great lesson. Another area that I've found sort of surprising and certainly interesting in, in your book is you give the advice, well, many people give the advice, follow your passion, but you say that's not right. enough to follow your passion. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, if you go to a commencement ceremony at many colleges that come up a little later in the year, uh, you know, there will be a speaker on the podium who will say, follow your passion. Right. I did that and look how successful I am, right? Do what you love, find something you love and then do it. Okay. There is a bit of a selection bias there because only passionate and successful people get to speak <laughs> at those ceremonies, right? The very passionate and failures do not get invited up on those podiums. So we got this thing called selection bias. The problem with the statement is as follows. Follow your passion really means that passion dictate what you should be doing, regardless of all the consideration. Because if you become a pragmatist, then you're not really following your passion. And the problem with that is that really oriented what excites you. Passion means what can the world give to you? Excitement, uh, satisfaction, engagement, things you like. It's almost a hedonistic quality if you think about it. Yeah. But there's a part missing, and that is what you can contribute to others. I call it purpose, many people call that purpose. It's a very plain definition. Do what contributes. What value do you create in your job? What can you contribute to the organization, its customers, and so on? And that is what you can give to the world. So it's very different from passion. And that turns out for performance is more important, at least in our data set. Purpose is more important than passion. Now, it is the combination of the two that creates the best performance. So my advice, especially to people are, earlier on in the career, maybe even just starting the career mm -hmm. and starting to get really get going on the career, it's not just running around looking for what they can be passionate about. It is also to ask the question, what is my purpose? And I say, I often ask, what is your personal purpose statement? Mm -hmm. What is it that you contribute that is unique to you and that is great? And l let me ask a little bit more about identifying your purpose. When you describe it, and in your own life, is it about in what ways you want to give back, or is it who do you want to serve, or some combination of those? It's not some combination. And so I think purpose is also a misunderstood word. We, we think of it as some kind of uh, societal benefit only. Mm. Like, I'm going to work to alleviate poverty. But let's face it, most jobs and careers are not oriented in those directions. What we found in our data is a lot of people feel like they have purpose in their job, even though the job itself doesn't sound like one of those, you know, bringing societal benefits. It's a good example. One of the case studies in the book is about a concierge uh, at a luxury hotel in Quebec, in Canada. Now, we might not think of a concierge job as something, you know, special that has purpose, right. but she thinks that her job has purpose and it has to her. And that is to serve the clients who come to the hotel on their vacation to try to have a good experience. And we know from research that experience is what drives happiness to a large extent. So he's trying to give people a good experience. That is being other oriented. It is about serving others. Uh, and that's her purpose statement. 
So let's get away a little bit from this idea that it only has to do with things around healthcare and helping oh, people. Grand. And, and so, yeah. Yeah, this, yeah, yeah, exactly. These grand things. No, those are great. Sure. Uh, but purpose is about saying, uh, who do I want to serve? My organization and maybe the customers of that organization. And the question is, are you providing value to those customers? And, and that's really purpose. Now, there is a personal meaning to it as well. It's very important. What is meaningful to you may not be what is meaningful to me. Mm. So I, I don't think it would be meaningful to me to be a concierge. Right. But it certainly is to her. And, and there's academic research that, that shows that people who have exactly the same job, even a trivial job, some people might see it as really meaningful and others as not meaningful at all. For example, some people studied zookeepers. Mm. Now think about that job. <laughs> You're cleaning up after animals in some sense. Right. Half of the people in the group said this is like a trivial <laughs> Terrible job to get a paycheck. The other said, this is my purpose, to care for animals who are in, in, on the endangered list. Yeah. Right? So different interpretations of the same job. So it's important to find something that is meaningful to you and then to be other-oriented. How can I contribute value? And by yeah. the way, there, there's an additional point to that, which is then you also are more successful because people say, you know, you're contributing value and we value that. Mm. Yeah. And that should shape your promotion and keeping a job because if you're contributing no value why are you around even if you have passion right who cares right yeah so again it's not just a nice thing to have it maps back to to success and you have a, a chapter in your book about working with others uh, collaboration of course this is a specialty area for you you've written on it before right. so what advice can you give us for collaborating with others yeah, so in the book, uh, in this book, Great at Work, we divide sort of these seven factors into two buckets. One is about mastering your own work and the, and the other bucket is about mastering work with others. Because after all, most workplaces today require you to work with others to achieve. We achieve not alone, but we achieve with others. Now, collaboration is an interesting topic. And one of the problems is that we tend to over-collaborate in organizations. We have too many task forces, committees, meetings, requests for help, emails flying around, and we spend an inordinate amount of time over collaborations. That's not the case always, but is often the case. Of course, there's also the opposite problem, under collaboration. So the question around over collaboration is how can we scale it back? Mm. And my advice is this, if you get invited to a collaboration project or you initiate one, and you have some discretion as to whether you should be doing this, then ask yourself the following question. Do we really, really need to collaborate here? What's the business case for this collaboration? For example, a task force. What's really the business case? And asking that question to the others who are doing it is a wonderful thing. And one guideline I sort of have is, if you're on your own or your own little team in your own department, and you think you can do this alone, there's no need to collaborate. If you have the expertise and the required skills to do it, why are you inviting others onto this project? That is a good question to ask. And I've done a piece of academic research that shows that if you have all the expertise yourself, there is no point really of collaborating. And, and yet people do it because they feel more comfortable doing it. But comfort alone is not you know, a reason for a good business case. Right. So those are some pieces of advice. Uh, scale it back. And when you do, do the few ones you do it and do them well. Mm, very good. Back to uh, that primary focus. Morton, I love the, uh, the book. Again, Great at Work, How Top Performers Work Less and Achieve More. Tell our listeners how they can find out more about you and, uh, and the book. 
Yeah, so you can go to my website where we have additional resources, including a quiz you can take to score yourself against the seven practices. And it's www.mortenhansen.com. Let me spell that. It's M-O-R-T-E-N-H-A-N-S-E-N.com. That's fantastic. We'll make sure we, of course, have that link in the show notes and in the articles about uh, the page. And thanks for including that quiz. I think those are great self-awareness tools that can bring real value to everyone. And then hopefully they will also check out your book. Morton, thank you so much for coming on to the LeadX show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. LeadX family, that wraps up another episode filled with leadership advice. But before I go, I hope you remember that at LeadX, we're on a mission to give free leadership training and professional development to everyone, anywhere, at any time. Visit leadx.org to check out our free course of the day and our weekly live webinars. And for your friends and colleagues who are managers, they lead people, let them know that they can get over 30 best-in-class management training courses on demand at their own pace at leadx.org for a ridiculously low investment of $7 per month. This is our public beta pre-launch pricing, and that quadruples really soon. Check out the LeadX Academy at leadx.org. And if you're the kind of person who always says thank you, then please take one minute, it's actually less than a minute, and go leave a rating for the LeadX show on iTunes. Just go to leadx.org forward slash subscribe, and it's going to bounce you to the right page on iTunes. You can just click some stars, maybe click that subscribe button. And if you have 20 more seconds, you could write a one-sentence review of the show. It's the single best way for us to build our family. And of course, because leadership is influence and we are leading all of the time, it's a question of are you leading in a positive direction or a negative direction? I implore you to be mindful with your influence, to be mindful with your leadership. How will you lead today? today? 